This is Mercy Harper, writer for Research Services at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with Stephen Caradini, Assistant Professor of Technical Communications at Arizona State University, to talk about artificial intelligence and how we can do a better job of communicating about it. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It's so exciting to be back. I love uh, talking about this stuff, and I appreciate the invite. Yeah, so um, you and your colleagues recently published a paper about AI in business communication, mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot that our knowledge management practitioners could gain from it, because mm -hmm. knowledge management, or um, KM, as I'll probably say a couple more times throughout, sure. um, you know, these teams often take a big role in integrating AI-enabled um, collaboration tools in the business, and yeah. even in organizations where IT is really the one who implements and runs this stuff, KM is kind of the group that play the role of explainer and translator to people out in the business. So yeah. I'm really glad to have you on um, to share a little bit about what you found. But yeah. first, I wanted to put you on the spot. Can you give us your best AI for dummies summary? What is AI? From my perspective, AI is not any different than regular computing. It's a supercharged, multi-faceted version of computing. So it, it is different in the scope that is attached to the computations. But at a practical level, AI is a set of uh, programs or algorithms trying to address a particular complex problem being run uh, very fast on very many computers, usually in the cloud. And so it is a problem solving at its core. Those problems are sometimes ill-formed and the answers are thus ill-formed as well. But essentially AI is um, from a technical standpoint, computing power attached to uh, a supercharged engine. And so you can solve more complex problems. From a more high level standpoint, the, the discussion of what is artificial intelligence looks more like how smart is this thing? Like what, wh why do we call it artificial intelligence? Well, it does such complex calculations and configurations of data that it seems like it approaches human capacities in various types of calculations. So you can ask it things, quote, air quotes here, you can ask it things and it will quote, give you an answer in the same way that you ask a friend something and it gives you an answer. Now there's a lot that goes into um, ask and it and things because those are all uh, variables that need to be deeply defined. But in a sense, the, the whole concept of artificial intelligence is to get computers to do things that humans aren't very good at very fast. So humans are not good at uh, multi-level complex calculations at enormous speed. Even if we are good at them individually, and there are many mathematicians that are very good at these sorts of things, doing them millions or billions of times is a computer specialty. And so that's sort of the, the mid-level conversation about artificial intelligence is what it actually is to have a tool that solves complex multifaceted problems. 
And whether that looks like human experience or doesn't is sort of the argument about um, the intelligence bit and also the artificial bit. So hmm. also oh. it's the Terminator robot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like I liked your mid-level explanation. Maybe I'm a mid-level person. Yeah, that yeah. That, that humans are, are not very good at and doing those at scale. Um, right. I can yeah. definitely uh, get down with that. So in your research, um, you and your colleagues explored a lot of different AI applications for business communication. So which one of those did you find the most exciting and perhaps cool? And which one was the most terrifying and potentially horrible? I actually am very excited about generative tools. Um, these do have their downsides as well, but they're AI tools that draw on enormous data sets of text and uh, make semantic connections. Some of them make semantic connections. Some of them just make technical connections. So some of them just figure out which words go near which other words, and some of them try to figure out the relationships between words. That's what I mean by semantic. So the lowest level of generative AI is Grammarly. Like This is literally a tool that does at a, a low level, a sort of artificial intelligence task, did you mean? I mean, you can also think about uh, Microsoft Clippy as an early version of this. Like, did you, are you writing a letter? Like, because it identified something that you were doing. And so I actually, the comedy of Clippy aside, I think that these sorts of tools are really productive, especially as workflows change and institutional memories get shorter. And there's a lot of people that are, um, on the periphery of organizations that are asked to do work that goes into the core of the organization, having generative tools that build in expectations and help frame different types of uh, meaning so that someone can say, I really want to say this, and the tool can say, well, in this context, we say it in these ways. I don't envision that AI generative tools could ever replace the functions of a uh, knowledge manager, for instance. But I do think that there are tasks that can be enhanced and core and periphery sort of positions in the organization can be more related to each other through shared ways of communicating. And those can be individual tools where there's like a style book that's added in to this thing. And you're like, oh, in this style, we don't actually do that. We do it this way or Grammarly in general, where it's like, these are the, the normative patterns. This obviously runs into lots of issues. All AI stuff runs into issues. That's why we wrote an article about it. But there are, there are lots of ways that this can turn into a top-down prerogative sort of concern. And that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the ways that people working at their desk bottom up can use these tools to say what they want to say and communicate what they want to communicate better. So that's what I'm excited about. I think there's a lot of promise there. But I do think that there are some, like you mentioned, some bad things that can go on with AI. And I think that anything surrounding AI that has to do with biometric analysis has more probability of going bad than of going well. There's plenty of tools that are trying to analyze facial motion, facial structure, analyze tone of voice, analyze lots of different types of biometric points to sort of assess how communication is happening. And some of this is for uh, training purposes. So you can imagine that there's tools that 
you go and give a speech to this uh, screen and the, the AI behind it says, uh, you probably should use your hands more. Like this is the most innocuous mm-hmm. like version of it. And the AI would never tell me to not use my hands more. It'd probably <laughs> tell me to stop. But so that's an innocuous level. And actually my colleagues who write this, wrote this paper use some of those softwares when they're teaching oral communication because it helps the students to be able to see, oh, this is a thing that I need to know in a way that is uh, less fraught than standing in front of a whole audience for the first time, right? So, so there's some really like meaningful and important and good uses of this for training. But when you start getting into analytic conditions, like trying to measure eyebrow raises and trying to do complex mathematical analysis of people's tone of voice and things like this, those things are possible, but they can go wrong really easily. And so, it, you know, it doesn't take long to think about, okay, well, what about accents or what about people with gruff voices or what about people with, um, you know, various types of resting face? Like, will they be assessed as being hostile because right. that is what some of these tools will do um, to the response when really their face just looks like that? That's how it looks. And some of these things are attached to obviously larger concerns about facial recognition software, which is a long standing and contentious argument that goes on largely outside of the communicative space. But these types of things are sneaking their way into communicative technologies and being used in ways that are potentially discriminatory if the machine isn't very effective at doing certain types of analysis. Um, The famous uh, HP hates black people problem, um, which we can throw a link to in the notes where HP's software for uh, some time was just really bad at recognizing uh, dark-skinned faces. Um, It was a very dramatic uh, problem for a lot of people. It made the software difficult, if not impossible, to use. And HP's response was, get some better lights. It's like, well, that seems bad. (laughs) So, uh, So there's just a lot of things built in to this whole issue that can go badly. So I have a very high opinion of what we can do with text with some mitigation of the worst harms, but I have a very low opinion of what we can do with biometrics Mm -hmm. with some some acknowledgement that I and my colleagues do actually use some of the lowest level forms of these. it is a thing that that I think has very great harms that are possible. And they are, this research made me feel like they are more possible than I mm. thought they were at the beginning of the research. Totally. Um, you know, made me kind of wonder, so for both of the capabilities that you were talking about, you know, the, the generative stuff and the biometric stuff, where are we at with like customization? Because I feel like for both yeah. of these... This is something that businesses would want either to do um, for generative generative text. You might want to customize that to your acronyms, your language, your stuff. Mm -hmm. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you get around the biometric issue if you can kind of tailor that to your workforce and what they look like and how they talk. Right. For text, we're getting really good at um, developing models that will be productive around established patterns. So if you give a AI tool standard text and you ask it to do things, we're getting very good at the AI coming up with something. Now, 
my favorite AI researcher, Janelle Shane, who runs AI Weirdness, specializes in breaking AI uh, algorithms and showing how they can go awry in various and terrible ways. And she likes to uh, make the, the AI tools uh, read like cookbooks and try to produce uh, recipes, uh, very inedible recipes. <laughs> and uh, she asks uh, for um, to make pickup lines um, and uh, jokes and uh, all sorts of things. This is a weekly thing, which is super helpful because it shows the limits of what we're able to do, which is why I can answer this question more specifically is because Janelle Shane has showed me here are the limits and here are the successes. And so the larger amount of text you feed a thing, uh, an algorithm, an AI tool, um, the better we're getting at putting out text that resembles what the answer is. Um, but we still, um, it's a brute force equation. It's more text equals better answers. It's not a uh, what we call in the paper artificial general intelligence, where a small amount of information can be generalized from based on connections that it can make in other places. There are still tools that she says, this is what I got out of this tool. It's not even words. <laughs> so there's still a, a sense in which the limits of AI customization are really the limits of the amount of data that you have to feed it when you train it. For biometrics and customization, there's a lot of information that is hard to parse about where we are with it because there's a vested interest for the people who like it for it to be successful and the people who hate it for it to be unsuccessful. So there's a lot of competing research right now. And I would say that I'm not positive that it is as successful as people say it is, but it's probably more successful than its detractors say it is. That's somewhere in the middle right now, particularly because people who run these tests often run them in like ideal pristine conditions, whereas the real world is less than ideal and pristine at most times in terms of lighting and motion and all these other things. Um, but I also do think that there are conditions in which it can partially to mostly do what it says it will do. So uh, now I kind of want to turn things back to KM. And mm -hmm. um, in your paper, you point out that one of the biggest risks around AI is the black box problem. And I think this yeah. will sound familiar to our, our KM folks, but can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, the black box is a box that you can't see into because it's black and there's nothing in there that you can see. And that's how a lot of AI technology is, is that you get the tool and they say, this is how it works. And you say, can we look at it? And they say, not really. Like, why would you want to? And you'd say, oh, you know, to check that it's actually doing what it says it's doing. And they're like, it is doing that though. Like, oh, but I would like to check. And, you know, it's just hard to do that because the software is in some ways... Um, running really technical algorithms that you need sophisticated, you know, computer science or at least coding background to understand. So sometimes the, the black box problem is we have no one here who can understand what this thing is doing. And other times it's we have people here who know what this thing is supposed to be doing, but we cannot get into the software. And these are two separate problems, one of which is uh, sort of a social problem and one is the technical problem. And the social problem is that often when people are working with tools like this that they um, don't have a complex understanding of, 
they will uh, use the outputs of the algorithms as a uh, sort of an answer. I mentioned like get an answer earlier in air quotes. And often AI produces predictions on uh, percentage scales. And it'll say we are X percent sure that this answer is what you're looking for. And so those are not often treated with the same level of let's say circumspection that the AI is actually assessing. Um, often the AI's output is treated as the output. And it's it's a social problem because people want to be using these tools well and appropriately, but what's the difference between 66 and 54%, right? What's the difference between 54% and 48%, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of variance of, about what those things mean and there's just not if there's not people that are well versed in how these tools should be implemented then you come up with i guess it'll work and we go with that and that's one type of black box problem the other black box problem is the technical side and this is variably true some companies are very open with their stuff and will point it out to you and other companies are are not and don't want you to see what they're they're making. So this is not a generalization for the whole field. It's a generalization of there are some tools that do this well, some do this poorly, which is audits. Like you want to audit what's happening is if it's doing what it's supposed to do, know where it's getting its data to produce its formulations. You know, famously biased data on anything that goes into an AI as its training material will produce more biased material as it comes out because the AI is ineffectively trying to make more things that look sort of like this thing it saw. And so that's um, a non-awesome outcome. If you're technically minded, you'd say, hey, can we go look at this stuff? And if they say no, then you just have to trust what's going on inside the machine. Um, so that's the black box problem is that there's there's just a lot of stuff we don't know. Sometimes we know we don't know it. And sometimes we don't know we don't know it. And getting around that has to do with, you know, I teach technical communication. That's part of why I'm on this paper is that we need to communicate technically about these things. We need to have good manuals. We need to read good manuals. We need to be able to make these good decisions. In general, we, this is a, a pure knowledge problem on the social side, which is like, we need to know more about this. We need to make more knowledge about this and then use more knowledge about this. From the technical side, from the creator side, there needs to be more standards. There needs to be more um, openness. There need to be some rules and guidelines. And um, I don't think that we're gonna end up with an AI tool standards industry. I think this is gonna be individual industries coming together. And I think that's gonna be an important thing at the macro scale, at the large long-term scale to work through some of these issues because there's gonna be some harms that at this point, if you identify them, you say, okay, either we accept this harm or we don't use the software. And like, that's not fun. And it would be better if there were like mitigation strategies somewhere in there, but there's currently aren't a lot, especially with the black box problem. So, um, so that's not a super fun answer. <laughs> This is not the uh, um, AI standards for fun and profit article, <laughs> but um, I do think that there are um, ways that as this field develops, this, this field of tools and, um, and functions, then 
there are ways that we're going to hopefully bend towards more information about these things, more auditing, more oversight, more awareness, and that will paradoxically make it easier to trust um, uh, things that are just taken on merit. Right. So if you give us enough information about what's actually happened and then you say, and then this is the secret sauce, we're not telling you about it. If you have a bunch of other information about the rest of it, you can trust the secret sauce more. No, totally. And um, for if there are any listeners out there um, working at these professional organizations that could be potentially developing standards and guidelines, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely check out the paper, research Me questions too. outlined and yes. uh, calls to action identified. Um, yeah. you know, Stephen and his Lots colleagues are eager for you to, to get going on this stuff. To close out, I'm wondering if you can offer any kind of like quick tips for KM teams that want to communicate better about AI, whether that's good stuff yeah. to say, stuff that maybe confuses people and, and leads them to approach AI in ways that are less than helpful. Thinking about AI in various ways is important, right? So um, AI as a tool is one way to think about it. This tool will do this thing for us. That's good. Um, we talk about in the paper that there are lots of ways to think about um, AI. Um, you can think about the role that it plays. So you can think about the, the, the ways that it interacts with um, the, the groups that will be using it so you know maybe it's like an assistant like grammarly right like it's a it's a thing that is helping you do something thinking about that as more um uh complex than something like me a meeting transcription tool which is also technically somewhere an ai um think meeting transcription tools and grammarly do different things they one of them is uh is typing down what you've already said and is not really putting together any um, new information, whereas Grammarly is suggesting things. So you might not need as much oversight for a meeting transcription tool as you do for a, a generative tool, right? Because the generative tool is more complex. It's, it's doing more work. It's, it's suggesting new ideas. And so thinking about uh, these types of tools differently helps, right? So if someone says like, hey, we're going to get a conversation bot in here and it's going to work to help our, um, our internal knowledge management team uh, field queries, you'd be like, okay, like, what does it actually do? Like, do we feed it a question tree or like, is it doing semantic analysis? Like, how does it actually work? And sometimes, like I said, you won't get that answer, but asking how does it work is another way of having better conversations about AI tools. And the more complex your tool is and the more high risk your outcomes are, um, the more you need to ask those questions. Um, I think to specifically answer your questions, you always want to know where the training data comes from. Like what sorts of data is it learning from and how does that affect what comes out of it? Um, because the training is, is really important to know how you're going to get certain types of outcomes or not. And you, you want to make sure that you're just asking good questions and, you know, where's, how does it work? What's the training data? Um, how many other people are using this? Like if it's a well-sourced tool, that's helpful. If you're a pilot or if you're in an early adopter pool, you may encounter some strangenesses that you wouldn't for a more developed tool. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of things to think about when you're talking to the company about whether you want 
to do this. And then you also talk to your people about it. Like if you're a manager and you're knowledging, knowledging, and you're knowledging, (laughs) (laughs) I hope all of you are knowledging right now. Um, If you're a manager and you're managing a knowledge team, you know, talk to your people and say, hey, do you feel comfortable with this? And if people are like, yeah, this seems like a good thing, then great, go on. Like, but if people have concerns, like listen to their concerns. Like this is not stuff that is like plugging in new light bulbs. Like this is a fundamentally different way of producing certain types of outcomes. And so if people aren't comfortable with it, listen to their concerns and bring those concerns to the company and talk to them. And, you you know, this is a thing that everybody's trying to figure out at the same time. Uh, seems like every problem is that now, but um, this is one of those areas where everybody's trying to figure it out at the same time. And so there aren't a whole lot of deep dive experts. I mean, that are, there are not a lot of deep dive experts that are doing this sort of translation work between the company and you. Um, we're hoping that this paper is one of them, but um, there's lots and lots of experts producing and there's lots of people using. And there's like in the middle is like the translation issues are are still thorny and difficult. And so um, that's why we wanted to, to do this is to present some ways that people can think about uh, AI without um, losing uh, control of the tool or the team, so. Absolutely. So uh, listeners, definitely check out the article. We'll have that linked in the description along with some other goodies that I think uh, Stephen and I will will put together uh, after this recording. So thanks so much for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It's always fun to come on and talk about this stuff. Well, once again, I'm Mercy Harper. Thanks for joining us for this APQC podcast. Please go to apqc.org to learn more about our research, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.